Welcome to the Secondary Market Masterclass, brought to you by Polly and produced by Housing Wire. I'm Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media, host of the Housing News Podcast, and your guide for this four-part educational series on mortgage capital markets. Over the next four weeks, we'll explore and discuss how the mortgage banking market functions, key relationships between the primary and secondary markets, process optimization and innovation, and the capital markets technology stack. Executives from Poly and mortgage banking leaders will share their expertise. The first episode in this four-part series is with Parvesh Sahi, Chief Revenue Officer at Poly. We focus our conversation on how mortgage lenders and investors work together to fund the housing market and an overview of the GSEs and agencies. Parvesh also shares some high-level knowledge on how lenders are enabling origination and capital markets collaboration in education that drives progress. I hope you enjoy and learn from this episode with Parvesh Sahi, Chief Revenue Officer at Poly. This masterclass series is brought to you by Poly. Poly operates the industry's only vertically integrated capital market solution, adding demonstrable value from rate lock through loan sale and delivery. Built in the cloud for the cloud, Poly automates and optimizes the entire capital market's value chain, helping lenders of all types and sizes proactively scale their mortgage operations. Capital markets leaders demand flexible and highly configurable technology solutions, and Poly delivers. To learn more about Poly, check out poly.io. All right, Parvesh, welcome to episode 101 of the Secondary Market Masterclass. 101. Thank you. Happy to be here. 101. Yeah, we're treating this like a college curriculum. We're start we're starting in the beginning, building the foundations to help the audience understand all of, all everything they need to know about the secondary market from uh, the intricacies of how the market is set up to technology and how participants and tech leaders are helping make the market more efficient. And today I'm thrilled to bring you to the show uh, to help bring some of your expertise to our housing news audience and, and talk about how mortgage lenders and investors work together to fund the housing market and some of the technology that helps eliminate gridlock and make the industry increasingly efficient. So before we jump in, Parvash, I want to kind of establish your background and help the audience understand the expertise that we have the benefit of learning from today. And, you know, I'll, I'll go ahead and plug that Parvash, you are a housing wire rising star uh, a few, a few years back and, and now a C-suite leader in the industry. So I, I think we um, identified someone uh, pretty, pretty well in uh, that, that rising stars program. Congratulations. Thank you. That's right. You're bringing back some, uh, some memories there on that side. So thanks for that. So Parvash, before you joined Poly this year, you spent 11 years in executive roles at Ice Mortgage Technology and sales and strategy, client management um, across multiple Ice Mortgage Tech brands with Ellie Mae, MERS, and Simplifile. Was Ice your first stop in your mortgage technology career journey? Um, it, w- it was not. Uh, prior to Ice Mortgage Technology, formerly known as Ellie Mae, 
Uh, I had served in two previous roles in two different companies. Uh, one was Questsoft, which was a small compliance technology software company out of Southern California. And then prior to that was Compliances, which was also in a similar space on the compliance side. And in those companies, I served as a sales director that became a sales manager. Uh, and then I also became a sales, uh, sorry, a product director um, that then um, later became a sales executive at, at uh, Questsoft. Everyone has a unique story about why they've entered the housing market or uh, built their career around this sector. What attracted you to building or joining the mortgage industry in the in a technology in the technology landscape, and then you know dedicating your career to to building and making this market more efficient? Um, that's a great question, and I think ultimately a lot of it anchors back to a lot of the things that we as individuals connect to. Uh, very well, which is um, housing and housing being such a important factor in our lives. And I think it comes from many different perspectives. Um, one is obviously the altruistic kind of thought process of, you know, providing homes for people. Um, but I think it's also, you know, people come at it from different areas of of that angle, but also just the interest in real estate in general, whether you own real estate, you are you know looking at open houses around your neighborhood or whatever it might be. And I think specifically for me, um, I grew up in a real estate family. My father was, was into real estate. Um, a lot of people that know me on a very personal level know he's kind of the American dream guy that came from India, came to the U.S., you know, built... Um, built himself up to be what he is today. Um, but I saw a lot of that from the real estate side. And so naturally I was attracted to real estate. At one point I thought I was thinking about becoming a real estate attorney, um, about out of that after working for a law firm for three years, but, uh, then really got interested in the finance part of real estate. And so that's how I got kind of pulled into it. I think there's always some peripheral interest, but ended up, um, going more on the finance side of, of the real estate equation. Many people enter this sector with an understanding of the, the real estate sales side, the, the home buying and selling and, and some understanding of mortgage origination that there, you know, there's a, this 30 year fixed rate mortgage product out there that most people use when they, when they buy homes, but very few people understand fully this, the, the servicing and secondary markets uh, sides of this industry, which is one reason why I'm excited to bring this secondary market masterclass to the housing news audience. As you've, your career has evolved and built in the mortgage tech ecosystem, when did you start paying attention to the, the capital market side of the ecosystem? And then how, how did that kind of translate to this career step that you made in, in joining Poly as CRO? That's a great question. I'm actually, I'm actually really happy the way that you actually frame that. Um, because to your point, I think a lot of people don't pay attention to the role that the secondary market plays in the housing finance industry. Um, and I think when I started to really pay attention to it was really right before the, um, the housing debacle in 2007, 2008. Uh, because I served in a role where uh, we were selling compliance software. Um, lenders weren't really paying attention to compliance and high cost loans at that time. Any loan and all loans were 
you know, come one, come all. And the secondary market um, enabled that, uh, um, quite frankly. And so when we were looking at helping customers automate compliance, as opposed to having some manual review by some, um, you know, chief compliance officer, uh, I had identified very early on that I needed to get to the secondary market to help them understand the benefits of having a compliance review run um, where it, there was uniformity from originator to secondary market investor to remove, reduce some of that friction between originator and secondary market investors so that when the loan got sold, whoever inherited the loan um, was absolved of any, you know, um, repurchase risk, you know, areas and also streamline that function to reduce costs. So, you know, I'd say 2005, 2006, 2007 was where I started to pay attention to it. And to your point, it really opened up my eyes to what um, or where the decisions were getting made uh, in order to enable, um, you know, finance options for borrowers. Uh, and, and so it's kind of blossomed from there in terms of what, what the secondary market's role was on that side. So you talked about interest in capital markets kind of pre-great financial crisis. And the great financial cri crisis changed a lot about the way the secondary markets are, are structured, at least where, where ownership sits. So um, before we jump too far into the, the alphabet soup of acronyms of who the secondary market is comprised of, can you lay the land, the kind of lay the groundwork for how mortgage banks access capital for lending. And you, you referenced this relationship between the originator and the secondary market. Well, let's, let's talk about how that relationship works. And, and I know it does differ across uh, type of lending institutions. So kind of give you a pretty open-ended question there to describe how origination shops access capital. Yeah, um, to your point, um, depending on what type of institution and what type of charter you have, it varies. Um, so you have obviously depositories and credit unions and independent mortgage bankers, which are kind of the three main ones that are, you know, accessing funds. You obviously have brokers as well, but they're not accessing funds to your point. And so from a, you know, credit union depository, they essentially have, you know, money facilities that come in various ways and mostly, you know, from deposits from borrowers that they can access on that side. And then as most industry um, participants know, independent mortgage bankers use warehouse lines um, to access funding um, from that side as well. Uh, and ultimately, that's where they're getting the money from. But in order to have liquidity and think about where they're going to lend out their next loan, um, they need to be able to have uh, that secondary market liquidity um, come into play as well. And so they have a choice of either portfolioing and leveraging, you know, the, the depository, the deposits money, the deposits from a bank. Um, but you also have um, the ability to fully liquidate that loan and sell to the secondary. And that's where a lot of that activity is happening, um, quite frankly. Uh, and so you have the alphabet soup that you're talking about with the GSEs. Uh, you also have the aggregators um, and the, uh, non-GSEs, which are their, the agencies as well that you get to interact with and, and really work within their guidelines um, to make sure that you are having that ability to liquidate the loan at the right time. 
So the warehouse lenders that work with independent mortgage banks are often depositories, correct? And not not a direct relationship with the GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Yes, that's right. Okay, so that it creates an interesting dynamic in the housing market where the depositories are um, mortgage originators themselves in many scenarios, lending directly to a, to a consumer, but also working with independent mortgage banks as a as a warehouse lender, um, you know, uh, essentially opening up credit to to competitors and market. It is, yeah. I, um, it's it's always been an interesting dynamic, I think, in this entire industry. To be quite frank, um, there's a whole lot of coopetition um, that goes on within the lending institutions because they could be multi-channel, um, and if you're multi-channel and you're an aggregator. And you're originating loans, you may be purchasing loans from someone that's just doing direct to consumer or distributed retail or whatever that might be. Um, on that side, I'd also say in the technology space, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of co-opetition that happens there as well, because ultimately, you know, if, if you're doing your job right, you're being very open and listening to the customer. You're not trying to uh, guardrail them into what you want them to do. You want to be able to service them you know, efficiently from a technology standpoint. Um, but then specifically with the warehouse lending and um, and originators and secondary market investors, yes, the big banks are, um, you know, providing capital to independents that will essentially compete with the bank's retail um, channel. Uh, but I do think that that's why it has been siphoned off pretty deliberately where you have treasury uh, most banks have a treasury department, which is governing the warehouse lending, which is separate from the mortgage origination, um, which I think does remove most of that conflict of interest. But obviously, um, you know, anyone at the big banks are going to want to be in tune with who they're competing with and provide, providing that co-opetition. So we're going to add some uh, definitions to the show notes for this for this uh, episode and put some uh, vocabulary in for for our folks tuning in for secondary market one on one. But Parvash, I'm going to ask you to kind of use the term aggregator a few times. Can you define aggregator to us and maybe, maybe talk through who some of the aggregators in sure. today's housing yeah, market are? I think the most basic uh, definition of aggregator is a a um, secondary market purchaser that is um, acquiring loans from the primary market uh, and in volume um, so that they can amass a set of loans or a bulk set of loans um, to get pricing efficiencies and then decide what they want to do with that set of loans thereafter, whether that means um, service the loan, you know, sell the loan off to uh the GSEs or agencies, or uh, you know, keep the note and service the loan. You know, decide what they want to do at that particular point. Um, but ultimately, there's pricing efficiency gains when there are large volumes of loans um, aggregated on that side, and then and then they can make their financial decisions from there. And so, if a lender doesn't have, or an aggregator doesn't have scale, or a lender doesn't have scale to sell directly to the secondary market. That might be a scenario where they leverage a a whole loan marketplace, or does whole loan trading play a, kind of a different role in the ecosystem? Yeah, that's right. It's a it's a whole loan sale, um, and most originators don't have the ability or the wherewithal to either directly securitize 
and create mortgage-backed securities or even service their loans. So they're just looking at it like a revolving door, right? They want to originate the loan, you know, make a margin on it, get it off their books and move on. Um, they're not as capital intensive, um, so they don't have the ability to originate a loan and, you know, continue to service Clayton Collins for, you know, 15 to 30 years or whatever it might be. So um, that's where they need that liquidity to the secondary market, which are the guys that do have the money. Um, and and then they have uh, the wherewithal to do different things with the loans, right? Whether it's service it, securitize it, sell it, whatever it might be. Okay. So we've talked through the primary market, the the mortgage origination stage and the relationship with uh, the warehouse lender and aggregators. Let, let's go deeper into the, the alphabet suits. Alphabet Soup side, the GSEs. Can you, you can talk about who Fannie and Freddie are, and then go into the the e and Federal Home Loan Banks? Sure, no, absolutely. So you have um, the government sponsored enterprises like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, and they are essentially government backed, uh, you know, um, uh, private entity um, that uh, provide a massive amount of liquidity. Uh, to the mortgage industry. Uh, and then you have the agencies, which are our government entities. They're not government backed. They're government, you know, entities that are providing um, all kinds of loan programs uh, to help consumers access, um, you know, or underserved markets access um, financing. So that could be FHA, uh, that could be Ginny May, um, and all the likes in between that are governed by HUD. Um, and then you have FHLB, which is also um, an agency, um, you know, uh, government backed, um, you know, uh, agency as well, uh, which uh, are really focused on um, providing depositories access to capital um, as well. So when you start to amass the GSEs and the agencies together, uh, they provide a whole bunch of liquidity for the primary market, independent of the aggregators of private capital. It's really government-backed, you know, capital, um, so that you have, uh, you know, not only um, liquidity but um, stability uh, in the market as well. We know private capital today plays a smaller role in the in the big picture than the the government backed um, GSC and, and agency business, but give us a quick glimpse into what the, what private capital looks like, what type of lending private capital supports. Um, yeah. So I think on the private capital side, uh, what you're really looking at is, uh, you know, brand names like a Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley that um, are, you know, traditionally out of Wall Street that are looking to acquire loans and securitize those loans and then sell them out in the open market. Um, I think it's less than 10% of the um, of the uh, loans that are getting acquired on the secondary market are happening through, um, you know, those types of entities. Um, and I'm not talking about the aggregators, but specifically the ones that are looking to securitize loans. Uh, and so I think we are starting to see that ramp up a little bit in terms of, um, you know, kind of alternative lending products, because we know that with interest rates going up, um, 
you know, essentially non-traditional, non-conforming loans are needing to uh, be provided out there so that borrowers do have uh, access to finance. And so you're starting to see things like non-QM and alternative lending standards start to ramp up, but it's pretty much a slow moving needle on that side right now. All right. So Parvash, it's a pretty complex ecosystem between primary aggregators, secondary markets. And I know the ecosystem has evolved a lot in, uh, in complexity and simplicity as technology has enabled this generation, this version of the, the housing finance ecosystem. Can you talk about how technology is connecting primary aggregation, secondary markets, GSEs, private capital, like how does this all come together? Because I'm assuming it's not the originator sitting at her desk saying this flo- This is how this loan is going to flow through the capital markets. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, from a, uh, you know, workflow standpoint, I think technology is kind of bringing a lot of that together. Um, not only in terms of, you know, direct connection of moving from an analog environment to a digital environment, namely things like bulk trades where you're doing spreadsheets and emails and things like that. Um, But really namely around pricing uh, where uh, historically it's been, you know, a price goes out. um, There is a price sheet that gets distributed. The secondary market capital markets person you know, essentially ingest that information. They convert it to some other type of spreadsheet that they're using internally. And uh, and then they make their pricing adjustments based on uh, margins, loan products, different loan parameters, risk appetite for certain geographical locations, whatever it might be. Um, and that's all getting converted now to much more of a system-to-system connection. Um and we're at the very beginning of it, uh, you know, very early stage, um, you know, type conversations where APIs can directly come from uh, the secondary market, like what what we're doing right now between Freddie Mac and Polly, and I believe we're we're doing something similar that we're working on with uh, Fannie as well. Um, but being able to feed those loan products and eligibility parameters directly from the secondary market into the front end system um, allow for that flow to happen, you know, much more seamlessly as opposed to having an antiquated analog, you know, systems that, you know, have quite frankly been uh, limited based on technology to be able to, to manage those types of things. That's a it's a helpful overview, Parvash. In our in our next two episodes in this series, we're gonna do a full conversation on the capital markets technology stack and and really go much more in depth on the tech stack. And we're gonna do a full episode on the capital markets desk to better understand the the workflows and and job roles and responsibilities inside of a lender and and how they enable the the workflow through the capital markets ecosystem and and with some focus on pricing too. Pricing has been such a front and center topic, especially in the last 12 to 15 months as we've seen mortgage interest rates um, move faster than uh, than we're traditionally used to. Right, yeah. And that speaks to the secondary market, um, 
you know, kind of influence and volatility on that side for sure on the interest rate side. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I'll have to bring that one up in a later conversation. The whole the whole housing market's moving faster with homes uh, technology enabling a lot of that. So, uh, yeah, volatility is a is a front and center topic. So, Parvesh, I want to you know st- sticking on this topic. Um, I know that you've had two decades of experience in the in the housing industry, working with lenders of you know all all different flavors and and sizes. Um, I want to learn more about your experience and the the strategies that mortgage and capital markets leaders should be paying attention to and uh, or, or maybe should avoid. I know you've seen some of like the the winning and losing strategies. So can you kick us off with where you think lenders should be focusing their capital market strategy efforts uh, today? Yeah, I think um, it's a it's a topic obviously that's top of mind, uh, not only for us at Poly because this is the space that we live in, but really lenders as a whole. Um, and I think that's because obviously there's been volume reduction in the industry. As you mentioned, there's volatility in interest rates. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, people have to do less, they have to do more with less. Uh, because they've had to reduce staff and all the, all those kinds of things. So I think, you know, ultimately it is boiling down to probably four main things that I think lenders are really um, wanting to be in tune with and focused on. Um, I, I'd say the first, especially in a purchase market, is being able to have really an agile approach to rolling out competitive loan products. I think that's one area that that people are definitely focused on. I'll, I'll get into more detail on that. Um, you also want to ensure, you know, direct and indirect uh, cost reduction. Um, you know, there's there's the actual dollars that you spend, and then there's the efficiency gains that you get. I'm on that side. Um, three, uh, it really invoking loan officer education becomes important. And then the fourth one I would say is really avoiding. Um, what, what I would refer to as tech gridlock. Um, so if you kind of like boil down those four, I think that's top of mind for everyone or, or at least the ones that are trying to really compete in the market, not just survive, but really compete in the market, gain market share, and then be poised um, for growth as volume starts to pick up. So if you start to think about, you know, having an agile approach to rolling out competitive loan products, um, that comes in a couple different flavors. Uh, one, as you talked about on the GSE side, the GSEs and the secondary market investors control a lot in terms of what they hand down from loan eligibility and product margin um, uh, options uh, to feed into your loan products. And so being able to react to that in a very efficient and cost-effective way, I think, becomes just critical um, for any mortgage lender and capital markets person to survive in today's environment. And so avoiding things where it takes, uh, where you take in loan eligibility requirements, and then you have to roll out a new loan product at a very specific, um, you know, uh, um, I would say guideline or or very specific um, granular parameters, you really don't want that to take, you know, hours, weeks, and in some cases, months 
to be able to get those loan products out, to be able to adjust and react to the market. Um, you also want to be able to uh, very quickly fine tune your margins at a product level, as opposed to being hampered by um, being able to sift through spreadsheets and you know hierarchical kind of loan approach, where you are are instituting or invoking margins that affect you know five different loan products, and then you have to kind of go unravel it. You want to be able to do it very quickly at the loan product level, so you can roll the product out, get it to market compete in the market based on, you know, the new rates and guidelines that have come down, put in your overlays or whatever they might be, and then do it at a channel level, product level, whatever it might be to be able to make, help you compete and, and identify not just margin management, but also reduce your risk of, you know, loan products that you're putting out there that, that you may actually not want to inherit um, because you didn't have the ability to do it at such a granular level. Um, I think, you know, the second uh, topic that I had mentioned aside from, you know, agile approach to competitive loan products is also ensure, um, you know, that you're really paying attention to how you're doing cost reduction. Uh, we know that um, people have amassed a number of technologies over the past, um, I would say not just three years, given how quickly everyone is moving the pandemic, but I'd say three, five, and 10 years, because quite frankly, the market was pretty good. And so spend was pretty high. And so um, a bunch of uh, lenders have amassed, you know, probably technologies that they don't need, or they inherited technologies that were promised one thing, but don't really achieve, you know, what they wanted to achieve. And so they are reassessing where they can find uh, technology that does do what they want it to do. And it's actually an opportunity to do it at a cheaper price. Um, uh, so you get the benefit of a better, more evolved, advanced technology that's out there that wasn't you know, built 5, 10, 15 years ago. Um, but you also get um, the benefit of the high growth technology company wanting to amass market share and they're willing to do it at a better, faster, cheaper rate. And then I think independent of the indirect um, or sorry, independent of the direct cost, you have the indirect cost, which really does speak to, um, you know, being able to leverage technology to create efficiency gains, eradicate, um, you know, manual workarounds and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you kind of get uh, the, the mutual benefit of direct cost, cost reduction, as well as the benefit of the technology that provides you on that side. Um the third one that I mentioned is really loan officer education. I think if you talk to any lender, uh, this is kind of the ongoing um, challenge for uh, you know lenders being able to um, be efficient, grow market share, and, and uh, manage margins. Quite frankly, is that loan officers typically just kind of default back to their you know, three or four, you know, six loan products, whether it's a fixed conforming that you were talking about earlier or whatever it might be. Um, and they don't really know about um, the plethora of the loan products that the mortgage lender and specifically the capital markets person behind them is working so hard to give to them to help compete in the market. And so there's a disconnect between, you know, what the capital markets person knows 
that they can provide to borrowers and the loan officer actually presenting those as options um, to the borrowers uh, to help win that business. And so I think, you know, the education of loan officers, being able to know what their arsenal is to then being able to, um, you know, articulate that to a borrower becomes more and more important in today's environment. And again, you need um, a couple of different things to happen there for the loan officer. It's education. Um, you can use technology to actually invoke those processes and propagate up what those options are so that then the loan officer is actually still in control of making those recommendations, but it's put in front of them to be able to, um, to compete, you know, out there in the market. In, in practice, Parvesh, how are you seeing the capital markets leaders or executive leaders and mortgage banks actually support that education and help LOs understand uh, new product rollouts or, or pricing or underwriting considerations? Like, How does that interaction work in practice um, from a best practice scenario? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. And I think the answer is um, it's kind of all over the map. And I think uh, there's essentially a continuum uh, that you look at in terms of how advanced lenders are and capital markets folks are in terms of bridging that gap uh, on that side. And so, you know, I'd say like on the left side of the continuum, which is very basic and fundamental, a uh, new program gets rolled out. They make an announcement to the sales team. They tell them, you know, I have a hundred loan officers, five of you asked for this product. We actually have it now. And probably the other 95 don't even know what it is or really even care about what it is because they didn't have that one borrower that they ran into um, asking for it. Uh, they just got it because, you know, some loan officer was loud enough to bark and get the capital markets um, leader to, you know, put it into the, put it into the loan um, portfolio. And so that's for some where it ends, right? They roll it out, they make an announcement, the sales folks and sales leaders maybe check in here and there in a very analog way. But if you start to move across that continuum to the right and start to think about the lenders that are thinking about, hey, I have competitive loan products out there. I want to get it out to borrowers. I want to educate not just borrowers, but loan officers on you know, this is a better loan product, not only for them, but for us as a bank, that's going to be much more profitable. They start to invoke uh, different parts of technology uh, to be able to do that. And so some of them are hampered. You know, I put them in the middle of the continuum. They're hampered by technology because they don't have things that are um, really, you know, um, uh, I would say more advanced from a tech stack. So they can't invoke um, APIs to feed that into the front end of whatever the application is that the loan officer is using, whether it's a POS or a low mobile application, or even, you know, if they want to do it through their LOS, um, which is a low mobile, they have to use APIs that are, you know, not well thought out and not really able to manage the speed at which a loan officer needs to get that information. So it sits there. It circles for a long time and then the loan officer sitting there frustrated and then they move on with their day because they don't want to see the loan products. Um, that's one area. And then the last one is, is really um, not just the tech, but also the workflows that are integrated from the 
um, loan origination system into the loan officer's, you know, user interface or whatever it might be, and then present it in a way that the loan officer can very easily and quickly consume that information. And so I think, you know, across that continuum, to answer your question, lenders are doing it all different ways. Um, but some of the more advanced ones are thinking about how they can do it better um, by invoking different workflows and leveraging tech to be able to actually put that in front of them. I think in some, you know, origination focused circles, like the inside of the lender, it often feels like origination, production leadership kind of sits at like tip of the spear and secondary is kind of enabling and supporting lending and then like getting loans off the book so we can rinse and repeat and do it again. But as, as you talk through some of the the best practices, what lenders should be focused on, it starts to present the capital markets team, the secondary team and kind of a light that is really uh, truly at the tip of the spear and helping make strategic product and pricing and efficiency decisions and playing a role in educating the whole organization and in the current lending capabilities. So LOs don't fall into a routine of thinking through their same uh, three or four products, but uh, that lenders actually have a more robust capability set and the ability to, you know, be creative as markets and borrower demographics demand. Yeah, absolutely. And like, how are you responding to your loan officers in an agile, quick way. So if a loan officer does say, hey, I'm just getting hammered because this other lender down the street has this one loan product that we don't have, if the capital markets if person gets that feedback from the sales leader or you know a bunch of loan officers, how are they going to take that information and then spin up a loan product that they get out to market in a high margin way to make sure they're not you know, screwing themselves up because you can put out, you know, a competitive loan product that actually hurts the mortgage lending organization rather than helps the mortgage lending organization, uh, but put puts that out in a very quick way so that then the loan officer can consume that. And not only that particular loan officer or set of loan officers, but then expand that out to the broader set of the loan advisors that are helping the mortgage lender, um, you know, increase loan volume, but also increase profitability. All right, Parvash, we just put a spotlight on the, the best practices, the things that lenders and capital markets teams should focus on. Now let's shift over to the landmines. Um, where should second, What should secondary markets teams avoid to be effective leaders and, and partners to their organizations? I think there's a number of things in today's day and age that are, are pretty dynamic based on you know the volatility. So um, you know, one, uh, well, and let me back up for one second, not just volatility, but also, um, you know, just generally being too reactive. And so, well, loan officers are going to come and give you f- feedback, essentially your salespeople are going to give you feedback. Doesn't mean that you always have to put that into the system day one. Um, you want to know, uh, ultimately, and, and you should really make a database, right? based on data that's out there that we provide, you know, through poly. Um, and you can probably gather from industry participants like more um, MBA and things like that. You know, what are the things that uh, you really do need to take cu- uh, sales and customer feedback and then put back out into the market? So don't be too reactive is, is the underlying thing there. You know, take the feedback, do your due diligence, 
um, aggregate some data from institutions like us and others um, to help make an informed uh, decision on that side. I think the other thing is, uh, you know, as a capital markets person, um, you are kind of like in your cockpit in a very, um, you know, um, uh, focused world. And I think it's important for capital markets folks to get outside of just, you know, their margin management and uh, trade and hedge kind of conversations and engage their tech, um, their internal tech partners, their uh, sales folks, their lock desk uh, team, if that sits separate from them in some organizations and really talk through like, what can we do collectively um, to move the needle forward in terms of, uh, you know, efficiency gains, um, up-leveling our technology or whatever it might be um, to become more competitive um, out in the market. And then I think the last thing is really around um, really the volatility. Uh, I think lenders are seeing in capital markets folks, uh, depending on risk appetite, uh, they see that so volatile that they are resigning themselves to kind of sitting on the sidelines and sitting with a static set of um, loan products and margins. And I would say, you know, there's technology out there right now that allows them to not have to resign themselves to that, um, where, yeah, maybe they're, they have proprietary systems or legacy technology that doesn't allow them to, you know, be as nimble, as quick to roll things out. Um, they can actually start to invoke some of that technology right now and go out and compete and take market share rather than just saying, hey, I'm throwing my hands up. I can't do it because I have so many manual processes. I'm not going to get to that level of detail um, on the loan product because all that's going to do is cause me problems with my CEO, you know, in terms of margin management, things like that. So um, they can actually take a proactive approach in, in fixing some of these problems rather than waiting for someone else to kind of solve them for them. And you can ha have the smartest, most experienced team in the world, but if the connectivity like that connects with the originators has has latency or isn't cloud native, that, that really can be a kind of a a hindrance to an effective strategy and that tip of the spear origination team feeling like cap markets and the the folks that are helping manage pricing and, and product um, are really partners and enabling origination growth. That's right. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think I think that actually alludes back to the fourth bullet that I spoke to on tech gridlock, um, which, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a broad encompassing kind of, um, uh, you know, um, phrase there, but it does speak to APIs. Um, it does speak to, you know, if you, if you're thinking about, you know, how you're going to orchestrate workflow um, between not only your pricing engine um, or your LOS or whatever it might be, but it's the interoperability um, that you need uh, between not only your origination um, system, pricing engine, but also all the other components, whether it's a CRM or um, lead, um, you know, lead generation tools or whatever it might be, um, how, how are they actually able to interoperate um, as well as are, are they able to interoperate with speed? And I think if you think about um, kind of the advancements in the technology world, you know, things were built in, um, you know, things that were uh, not cloud-based. They were smart client, whatever it might be. 
And then as technology has advanced, there's tried, there's been this conversion or this desired conversion to come into something that's more cloud-based or, you know, APIs were discovered, you know, four or five years ago, or I guess five, seven years ago. And so, you know, technologies were not built with that capability adjacent to them. They're trying to, you know, make them reconnected uh, on that side. And I think the reality is, is that um, that causes as, as good as that is and that effort is being done, if it wasn't built day one with either, you know, kind of a cloud native perspective and an API adjacent thought process, then you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. And so the example that you gave around latency is, you know, APIs that you may need to make, you know, 10 or 15 calls because APIs were built after the fact, as opposed to in parallel with the technology getting built, where if you're building APIs along with the application and it, with that mindset of it's going to be an API and it's only one or two calls, the speed that that provides is, um, you know, much better um, experience. And then it doesn't, you know, lock you up from being able to say, hey, I really do want, you know, in our case, a pricing engine to be interoperable with my point of sale system. It flows very seamlessly as opposed to, you know, just having a bad loan officer experience. So as you've gotten out and, and talked to some of the the poly clients, was this, uh, were, were you hearing um, that they were looking for this API first strategy or that they were ready for a, a cloud, a cloud first approach? Like what was kind of the, the lender cap markets desk, like receptivity and demand for the, the technology that's being built and brought to market today? Yeah, I think, um, there's kind of two vectors that you think about there, right? You think about um, the vector of the user persona, to your point, and then you think about the vector of the wherewithal and the capabilities of the actual lender. And so, you know, the capabilities of the lender, um, they all have different wherewithal. And so some of them, um, you know, quite frankly, aren't going to go places where other lenders are going to go because, Mortgages may be a second job for them. They may focus on other types of consumer lending because they're a community bank or whatever it might be. And they do, you know, 10 to 15 loans a month and they don't need to get to this super advanced, well-orchestrated workflow or, you know, mobile, you know, application kind of world. And so in that, um, you know, they're going to be more user interface based. They're going to be perfectly fine with, you know, a loan officer logging into two or three different systems and using those two or three different UIs to get their answer. But the ones that are in it to win it and really, you know, are mortgage focused and want to take market share and grow volume and operate at scale um, are really investing not only in the tech, but they have the wherewithal internally to take things like the APIs and, make those um, integrated across the different applications to make it flow that way. So, you know, again, continuum, different lenders are looking at different things. And then at the persona level, if you go down capital markets, loan officer, whatever it might be, you know, capital markets want to reside in something that they can very quickly play with margins, play with different products and, um, Iterate, do different scenarios, push things out and operate with speed in terms of, um, you know, those different options that they can provide 
to their customers and uh, internally from a profitability standpoint. The loan officers, you know, they don't want to sit in many different applications. So to your point, it's almost like the larger lenders and the really good loan officers are demanding the API approach where the lender is going to have a tech forward approach and feed those APIs and feed the, you know, the um, bi-directional communication into the application that they're going to sit in. So you kind of take the different vectors and you have to kind of align, you know, all the different things there. All right, Parvesh, this has been an outstanding one-on-one to the secondary markets. We talked about how the primary market interacts with aggregators in the secondary market. We also learned a lot about how teams inside of mortgage origination shops and independent mortgage banks interact with each other uh, and secondary markets teams and executive leadership, technology, and loan origination. In the next three episodes in this masterclass, we're going to spend time learning about process optimization and how some of the, the, the best of breed originators and capital markets professionals demand a best in breed tech stack. And I'm really excited for, for that conversation. We're also going to talk more about the specific roles of the individual professionals in the capital markets ecosystem, how they, how they fit into the process in the evolution of capital markets and in mortgage technology. I'm really excited for this secondary markets masterclass and Parvesh, you set the stage incredibly well. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Clayton. And thanks for the, uh, the partnership with uh, HousingWire and everything that you guys do on your side to really, um, you know, get good content out to the industry. It's really appreciated. Moving the housing market forward. We do it together, Parvash. Thank you. Thanks, Clayton. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for HousingWire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm.